So if you have your Bible with you this morning, turn to Luke's Gospel, the third chapter, and we will go starting with verse 1. Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea, and the region of Triochnus, and Licinius, the Tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of, the, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And he came unto all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. <clears throat> every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. And begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Amen. That is the word of the Lord. As we go into the Gospel of Luke this morning, it is important for us to understand the context. Luke was a physician. And so even as you read the passage today, you may have picked up something very important about him. If you read chapter 1, his prologue, it, it goes down as one of the finest Greek stylistic literary pieces in all of ancient Greek literature. Luke, on top of that, was a world-class historian. Now, why is any of that important? God uses fishermen. He saves drug addicts. The lost, regardless of rank in society, socioeconomic status, God saves everyone who will simply come to him in faith. Why is it important for us to note that about Luke? It is important because as we read a passage like today, it reinforces the notion that we are not following a myth. My own personal testimony comes to bear even as I read the Gospel of Luke. Although I was raised in a Christian home, a third-generation pastor, by the time I got to college, I had severe doubts of my faith. Stories that I once accepted as fact, Jesus walking on water, the resurrection, now all of a sudden seem like myths. And I became very close to becoming an atheist. But by God's grace, the journey towards faith and 
sealing the centrality of Christ, the historicity of his resurrection. That journey took some time, but it came to fruition, and that is why you see me here today as a preacher of the gospel. But it is also because of writers like Luke, a world-class historian, who unlike the other religions and their quote-unquote sacred texts, in verses 1 and 2, for example, anchors everything that he's about to share with us in a punctiliar moment in history, surrounded with facts, so that there is no question that the faith we, we follow in Jesus Christ is a historical fact, not just mere religion. And that's important for us today. It's important as we read the text here today that he names no less than five Roman officials to open up verse 1. He details every single official with such precision that there is no question amongst his hearers of the exact specific time these events occurred. Take a look at verse 1. Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, Tiberius Caesar, the emperor, the governor uh, Herod, Let me just get this mic on. Is that better? As we take a look at verse 1, we see Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea, We see names of officials and their titles with with great historicity. A number of years ago, for centuries, uh, scholars, especially of the uh, skeptics, would say things like, for example, Pontius Pilate never existed. This was made up. And archaeology, time and time again, has proven the Bible to be correct. We now know through archaeology that Pontius Pilate was indeed governor of Judea. Scholars, skeptics would toss this aside and say that this is wrong. We've never found anything regarding Pontius Pilate until they were digging in Caesarea in the 60s. They were actually building a water park out there, and then they excavated entire remnants of a city along with the headstone in Latin, which said, Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea. And there is now no question that this Pilate was not only only a historical figure, but the governor of Judea. And so time and time again, you see examples where the Bible is verified by archaeology. Millions of discoveries until this day, not one, not one has disproved the Bible, but rather all have proven the veracity of Scripture. This book is not mere religion. It is historical fact. 
And that's important for all of us to remember this morning as we celebrate, uh, we're about to celebrate the historical birth of Jesus Christ. We may not know his accurate date of birth. And I'm not here to say he was born on the 25th of Christmas. No one knows. But what's important is not so much when was he born, but the fact that he was born. Amen? Amen. A Savior did come. It is a fact of history, and it is that historicity that gives us hope to face tomorrow and eternity, knowing that because he indeed did come, die, and resurrect, heaven will be a reality for us. Amen? Amen. This is a fact. This is historical fact, and therefore our faith is eternally precious. But as we look at this gospel The first announcement of Jesus' coming, his ascension into heaven. When we read Luke's gospel, Jesus is at the center of everything. The songs are for his praise. The miracles are by his power. The teaching is from his wisdom. The conflict is over his claims. And the cross is only one that he can bear. Luke gives us all of this, and he furthers his account with literary unity, historicity of the first class. And he intertwines the stories of Jesus and John the Baptist by beginning and ending his story at the temple as if they were bookends. By presenting the life of Jesus as a journey toward Jerusalem. And by following the progress of the disciples as they learned this one crucial fact that it costs to be a disciple of Jesus. I think that's lost in many of our churches. It's more about consumerism. How can I attract a crowd and keep that crowd? Rather than the hard claims of Jesus A Jesus, a Savior who said, if a man desires to be my disciple, let him take up his cross. Not his cross. Only he could bear his cross. But we all have a cross. We all have a unique calling to suffer. Let him take up his cross or her cross and follow me. A unique call. That's lost. And the disciples learn about that. And we see that in Luke's gospel. And at the very core of the fundamental unity in the gospel, and I would say at the fundamental unity of the person of Jesus Christ, Luke puts this at the very center. The mission to seek and save the lost. The mission to seek and save the lost. Church, you are on mission today. I know some of you came to church today thinking, oh, it's Advent, we're getting close to Christmas. I should be in church, it's Sunday. Maybe that's something you were raised to do. But the Lord has it that you're here today to hear a a message, yes, about Advent, about the anticipating uh, anticipation of the coming of the Messiah, but it is also a reminder this morning 
to all of us that we are on mission. Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost. So we read this passage and we start off with a section very specific in its accuracy. And like I said, I am thankful for that. Not all the gospel writers capture that. If you read Mark, he doesn't capture that. But Luke does. It's almost as if he gives us a journalistic perspective and he's reminding all of us through his writing to Theophilus, this happened in history. And these are all the officials who were alive and these were the people in charge and all of Israel saw this. It, this, is, this did not occur under a rock somewhere. And right away, it stirs our, 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 our hope. It stirs our hope because it anchors it in Luke's credibility. Then we go on and we begin to read in verses 4 through 6 as he recounts the great prophecies of Isaiah, or as we know him, Isaiah. And here's what it says. The text talks about a voice of one calling in the wilderness. He's talking about John the Baptist here. And one thing you have to know about John is that he is identified by Luke as a prophet. A prophet in line with the Old Testament prophets. Now you have to remember this. The last time the word of God came, as it says here, the last time the word of God came to a prophet was 460 years prior to this event surrounding John. Malachi was the last prophet to receive the word of God. And then Israel entered into a time of silence, a time when God did not speak canonically. We call that, as scholars, we call that the intertestamental period, a period where we don't have, as you look in your Bibles, between Malachi and Matthew, there's nothing there. God was silent. And we look at this text, and can you imagine the joy and the excitement in the hearts of the Jews as all of a sudden there is a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. The application is for all of us here today as well. We live in a metaphorical spiritual wilderness in America today. I'm going to say that again. We live in a metaphorical spiritual wilderness in America today. If some of you were to stand up like John and go out and say what he said, you would be in trouble. If you were to stand up and say, make straight the way of the Lord, in the midst of a a spiritually confused, a sexually confused, and I would say this, right? Politically, nationally confused age. 
If you were to stand up in this age today and say what John said, you would be persecuted. You would be labeled as discriminatory. There would be hate coming your way. But I want to urge you, brother, sister, as you read the word of the Lord today, that that's exactly the setting in which John operated. Remember that at the end of John's life, it didn't end with him peacefully passing away on a ventilator. He was beheaded. Because you see, this message that was spoken to him and through him by the power of the Holy Spirit, he continued throughout his life. He called people to righteousness. He said to make the crooked paths straight. He called people to repentance. He called adulterers to turn to the ways of the Lord. He called the crooked to make their paths acceptable to God. And it cost him his life. He was beheaded. And so... Jesus later calls John a flame, a light. He sparkled, even if for a brief moment, but boy, did he shine. And we are all called to shine in that manner because light shines brightest when it's darkest. And brothers and sisters, it is dark out there. But Jesus reminds us, what good is a light a candlestick that is lit if it's put under a bucket. Or the, the Old Testament, uh, the Old English word, a bushel. What does it profit to have a candle lit but to put it under a bucket? Your light is to shine. Shine your light. And like John, go and proclaim the ways of the Lord. As we move through this text, we then come on verse 6. And this verse is so vital to the theme of Luke. Here's what it says in verse 6. And all people will see God's salvation. Again, if you remember what I said at the beginning of this message, the, the very centerpiece of John's gospel is that God came to seek and save the lost. Prior to Christianity breaking forth into the world, salvation was by and large relegated to the Jews. And what Luke reminds his audience and us today is that our Savior, whose birth we're about to celebrate very shortly, he is not simply the Savior of the Jews. He is a Savior for the world. And verse 6 is critical this morning because Luke's point is this. He lines up with John in that most famous verse, for God so loved the world. He sent his only begotten son, Jesus. We give gifts to each other during Christmas, but God gave the greatest gift. 
in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And what verse exclaims to the world is this, God wants the entire world to know and be saved. But to know what? You see, the people here were coming to John because they thought John provided salvation. Again, if you spoke the way John did, you would get in trouble. Read verse 7. John uses terms such as brood of vipers. Now, we know from studying the scripture that the serpent, both in the garden and throughout all of scripture, ending in Revelation, that great serpent is often a literal or later on a metaphorical example of Satan. So for John to turn and tell, look at the text carefully, you would think he's talking to the Pharisees and religious leaders. That's not what the text says. Look at what it says. He tells the crowd. He calls the crowd, you brood of vipers. Again, if a preacher preached in this way today, he would get in trouble. But was, voice, was the voice of John needed? Did he have to do this? Was he called to do this? Was he faithful in doing it? Think about those questions. Because the crowd, they're coming to him for one reason. Absolution. Here's a man, a holy man, dressed like a holy man, weird enough to look like a holy man, in all sorts of camel-loin garments and eating locusts out in the middle of a wilderness. And so he certainly must be the way. And so they're coming to him for baptism. And here's my final point here today. Look at verse 7 and then transition into verse 8. The word of God is very clear. You brood of vipers... Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit keeping with repentance. Whose wrath? God's. That's right. God's wrath. I grew up in public school and in high school, one of the messages we had to read was Jonathan Edwards' message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God maligned, by the way, by my public high school English teacher, displayed in ways that Edwards never intended it to be displayed. But did you know that God mightily used that sermon to bring about the first great awakening in America? And what, what does John tell the crowd? Not only the religious leaders, everybody. Baptism cannot save. But let me phrase it another way. Baptism being a work, you are not saved by works. He could have said the same thing to Pontius Pilate who washed his hands 
thinking that will absolve his guilt for ordering the crucifixion of Jesus. And this is where we stand in stark difference with Catholics. And I make this clear. Baptism, the waters of baptism do not wash away sins. The waters of baptism are not regenerative. There is only one thing that can save, and that is faith alone, in Christ alone, in the gospel alone. Now, what is the gospel? Every time it's my turn to preach from this pulpit, I share it with you. Four simple points, is it not? I don't get it from some track. I get it from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, I remind you of the gospel that you've received, you stand on, by which you are being saved. Point number one, there is a God who is holy, righteous, and just. Point number two, all humans are sinners. By nature, it says in Ephesians 4, deserving of God's wrath, headed there. We are sinners indeed in the hands of an angry God. Not because he is arbitrarily angry, but because he is holy and must judge sin. But point number three, some of you have heard it, but when I talk with soldiers, there's a generation that has never heard these words. For God so loved the world... He gave his only son, Jesus, who was fully God, fully man. He lived a sinless life, and then he died on the cross, paying for the sins of those who would put their faith in him. Historically, resurrecting the third day, Paul says, without the resurrection, there's no gospel. That point number four, if you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus as your Lord, God, and Savior, you have eternal life. The moment you do that, that's when you're born again. Think about the thief on the cross. Last moment conversion, didn't have time to be baptized. And yet Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, it is not your works that save. It is your faith in the gospel that I just proclaimed, a genuine faith in that gospel that saves. The moment you believe, you're born again but make sure you believe. Because here's what, John, here, here's, here's what John says. Bear fruits keeping with repentance. What does that mean? Luke, what are you talking about? I think of the, of the epistle writer James. He puts it succinctly in this manner. Many of you know this. Faith without works is, there you go, dead. That's what he's saying. When John proclaims this message, he's simply saying, make sure your life, your fruits, your works align with your profession. In other words, don't just tell me you're a believer in Jesus Christ Show it to me. James um, makes this uh, rhetorical statement in his epistle. He says to these individuals who live like the devil but simply claim Jesus, he says to them, show me your faith 
without your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. Oh, it is cool to have verses tattooed on your neck, on your hands. Get the bumper sticker. Wear the bracelet through the sky point after a game. But it's a lot harder to have your life line up with what you profess. Amen? And so the message here today that John, he is a bold man of God. He stands up there and his message is very simple. Don't just talk the talk. Make sure your faith is real. Make sure it's authentic. Because if authentic faith is the only thing that gets you into heaven, you better make sure it's real. And how do you do it? Your fruits. Your works, your life will testify to the authenticity of your faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your message this morning.